0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for coming back. This is Sue Heilbronner, your host for The Real Leaders Podcast. And yet again, it's no surprise anymore. We're joined by another phenomenal leader of a really game-changing startup. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Lee Mayer. She's the co-founder and CEO of Havenly. And I know you're going to get a chance to hear all about that. Lee, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Lee, the way we start Real Leaders Podcast is that we ask the entrepreneur or the CEO, in your case, you're both, to share their three-minute life story.
1: Wow. Well, let's see. I was born on a dark and stormy night. I'm kidding. Um, uh, So I actually, I grew up in the D.C. area. So I grew up um, in a family, actually, of Uh, I wouldn't say entrepreneurs, but we had a number of entrepreneurs in our family. Um, My father actually was one as well. So when I was six, he quit his job to to start a company and, and was very successful with it. So I think I saw that kind of thing at a very, very early age. And, you know, I had a, an incredible family, one sister who will come up later in my life story. <laughs> I left home to actually go to Columbia in New York City for college, spent a lot of time in New York, actually stayed in New York afterwards, worked there in sort of financing consulting jobs, um, went to business school up in Boston, and then came back to New York. So I'm really kind of an East Coast girl. While I was at business school, I met my husband he convinced me to move out to Denver. And so that's how I ended up out here. And in trade for moving out here, in some respects, I was able to quit my relatively boring but high-paying job to start a company. And that's really what led me to this point. So what happened was I was on the phone with my sister, and we were talking about our woes around moving, And we realized that it was actually really hard to find furniture to decorate our spaces. And we thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if for a couple hundred bucks, someone would come and just do it for us? Because I don't know what to do. And thus, the idea was born. And since then, we've been working on Havenly, and it's grown a ton, and it's been a lot of work, but a lot of fun as well. I just want to go back a step. People
0: always say this. People who went to school where you went to school always say this. So I went and I got my graduate degree, you know,
1: in Boston. So <laughs> where did you go to school for your MBA? Leave? I went to Harvard Business School. And I normally say it, I actually have no problems with it. It just came out as Boston. Sadly, I, have, I think I have, I'm more of an education <laughs> snob than I am somebody
0: who wouldn't like to hear that. I have to admit that. So. Let's talk about HBS and your educational background. Where did you get this impetus to sort of pursue excellence from what I guess was a pretty, pretty young age?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it was always an expectation. So, um, it was always an expectation that I would go to an Ivy league school. Actually, it was a kind of a big deal that I went to Columbia over another school that was (laughs) higher ranked that I decided not to go to, but I wanted to go to New York. Like that was something I really wanted to do. And that was my form of rebellion. A lower ranked Ivy league school was my form of rebellion in my household. But my parents are Indian. I think in many Indian immigrant families, you get this ethic around education. And it was sort of fostered by, I, I was always a big reader, like, you know, from a very young age. I really enjoyed math puzzles and logic games. I was kind of like a very odd kid, I think in some ways. That, And my father in particular was just a really erudite kind of Interesting guy who really fostered this with us. I think education has always been a really big part of my life. I still enjoy many of those things, so I really like sort of continual learning. I enjoy taking classes online. I've always sort of had that in me, so I've been fortunate to sort of have had that around me for a very long time. Okay, what school did you not go to? Oh no, we're not going there. We're not talking about <laughs> it? I mean, we. If my mom hears it, she'll be really mad
0: <laughs> again. <laughs> All right, all right. we did talk with one CEO on an earlier episode of this program, whom I think you know, who turned down Stanford to go to CU, and I think it's been pretty game-changing for him, so obviously you made a good choice. It's probably not accidental that fashion came into some element of fashion, ear and home design. I imagine some of that came from New York.
1: Well, you know, it was funny. So in high school, I thought I was going to be your classic actor, dancer, Columbia student. Classic. (laughs) I thought I'd go there and I'd get famous. And so I potentially went for the wrong reasons. I was very young. I think what I really loved, so when you grow up in like a a relatively, like an upper middle class um, environment in the suburbs of D.C., you grow up pretty sheltered. And I think what I loved about my time in New York when I look back on it is it It gave me an edge, which I think I really needed, um, frankly, but also gave me a sense of realism. So like you have to work hard to get somewhere in this world. It's not mom and dad buying you a Mercedes at 16.
0: Good. That wasn't my life either. You know, one thing I think gets a little bit confusing around this topic of education, which I talk about a lot with my guests on this podcast, because I, I do think it matters But what's interesting is it's hard to parse whether you are successful in part because of the education and the credentials that derive from that education, or whether you were always successful. So those schools to which you you were admitted are really just evidence of a path of success that started very young. How do you think these schools being in your background now plays into your current success
1: you know I think about that sometimes too and I think about that because oftentimes when I interview kids you know I do sort of local interviews for these schools or I meet people from schools and I sort of wonder I mean there's really a selection bias thing right so they're selecting the top kids from the country people that graduate from Ivy League schools or your Stanford's of the world are going to be more likely to be successful because they've just had that history of it. However, I think now that I've started Havenly, I will absolutely say that a lot of where I have gotten is entirely due to not just the schools, but some of the places I've worked because of the network that it's given me. Mm -hmm. And so I think in particular, like being in Colorado, you sometimes lose access to some of the larger networks that are larger on the coast. And I think it was a really interesting challenge for me having come from a major city to move here and lose the access to that if i hadn't gone to some of the schools i had gone to or worked in some of the places i'd worked i don't know that some of those partners would have met with me i wouldn't have stood out from the crowd in the same way i wouldn't have known who to call i'm happy to say it does help it's not a great story i realize but like it's not a fully democratic story but it is helpful to be a part of the club
0: Well, the funny thing, Leah, I mean, I know you a little bit, and I've seen you in action, including your edge, and you are one of the most tenacious people that I've ever encountered. (laughs) So you actually don't know if the same results would have occurred. You can't know. So I accept the fact that it took fewer phone calls for you to get access to those people, but we both know examples of people who are as tenacious as you are, who don't have that totally. resume? Yeah, totally. Who make the extra 27 phone calls and get the right. meetings? Yeah. So actually, I think either way it cut. But I, I just think it's interesting to think about sort of the cart and the horse in the story of those proxies we use for success totally. when we do things like interviewing.
1: I think that's true. I mean, I think you're right. You can't know the counterfactual. I have no idea what my life would be like if I hadn't gone to these schools. For one, I probably wouldn't be in Denver because I met my husband at HBS. So, so that would have been different. Um, but I do think it's it's really interesting to think about. I mean, you meet some really spectacular people when you go to these places. But I met spectacular people, as you mentioned, outside of these places. Some of the biggest success stories around startups in the last decade, those CEOs did not go to those schools. I don't know. I My profile, I am a I admit it.
0: Okay. This isn't admit even my it. interview. I admit that I'm a school snob because of what you talked about. Cause they do this vetting yeah. thing and whatever. Yeah. But now given the economics of education, I've started to become a different kind of school snob, which is someone who really crushes it at a state school, particularly if they're an athlete at all, mm-hmm. that person, I mean, Let's face it. You go to these schools. I went to Duke. I didn't go to HBS. No, Duke is the slum. I've heard of it. The good schools. Yeah, it's one of the 20 schools in the top 15. So you go to Duke and it really, I mean, try to find someone who got a D minus in calc. Like it's really it's hard pretty to hard, find. yeah. But you go to University of Maryland and end up with straight A's. Yeah, and That really says something totally different about you.
1: I think that's right. I mean, there are some really impressive people. I You know, one of my best friends, actually she went to HBS. Uh, One of my best friends went to the University of Minnesota. She got into Harvard. She couldn't afford it. She decided not to make that decision. She went to the University of Minnesota. She's a superstar. Jess, if you're listening to this.
0: (laughs) You're a superstar. So tell me a little bit about your dad's business.
1: As an engineer by training and trade, he left his government contracting firm that he was working for to start his own. It sort of came at a very good time um, for a variety of reasons. And then he started moving into sort of the outsourced labor field because we have the connection to India. He did relatively well with those endeavors and now does a lot of investment in, in that space. What kind of role did your mom play in your upbringing? So mom is a stay-at-home mom. What's interesting about my mother is she is a spitfire. My mother is an interesting woman. And I think there are a couple of things that I've learned from her that I, I don't know that she would know, which is first, stand up for yourself. Second, appreciate that you have so many luxuries in your life that other people don't, so use them. Her whole thing is take advantage of where you are. And then I think third, like the power of a good meal. (laughs) <laughs> it's like Say more din- about that. dinner on the table and it was always freshly cooked and yeah, really interesting you and you know, you felt good after eating it. Mom's big on the family dinner
0: thing. Got it. Who are the co-founders of Havenly? And we, I promise we will talk about Havenly here in a minute, but <laughs> no, who are the co-founders? Okay.
1: I talk about Havenly all day. Yeah, I could talk true. about something else today. <laughs> so I started the business with my sister, Emily, who is six years younger than me. And along the way we met as an advisor, Jesse Dixon, who's currently our COO, along the way we also realized that she was awesome, so of course, tried to score that talent as quickly as we could, so that we were sort of the triumvirate that started this company.
0: And I, I guess I should ask Jesse this question, and I never have asked Jesse this question, <laughs> but there's one company that I recall, the Motley Fool, was founded by two brothers and a third person. Yeah. And I always there were, this is a long time ago, but there were always discussions about that dynamic with a triumvirate that included two sisters. And yeah. I, I think you and your sister are extremely close. Is that? true?
1: Yeah, we're pretty close. I think, I think what's even maybe harder is we think about things the same way, which we actually think is great. I mean, it's great for sibling bonding, but it's not so good when you're starting a company huh. because it means that like we approach things from the same perspective, which at a really early stage is the worst thing. You need someone who's able to like be the yin to your yang. You okay. need someone who can like sort of look at a problem and be like, okay, here's the creative way and the big picture way of sort of approaching it. And someone that's able to say, here's the tactical way of doing it. And and those are two very different skill sets. And so I think it was important to do that.
0: So describe the way you and your sister think. I'll
1: talk about Emily for a second. Great. <laughs> because I can. Um, and just
0: give her last name.
1: just so Emily Matayad. Sorry, yes. My, my last name is different now. She's like your big picture, creative, crazy brain. She's like completely fearless. We'll ask anyone anything. You know, just... She's just very much that way. If you ask Emily to do something detail-oriented, she'll do it because she works hard and she's been trained to do so, but that's not what she really likes. Nor would I say, bless her, is it what I her strength. Um, and I'd say that's the same for me. Um, and so that's a, like just a different way of looking at the world.
0: And Jessie, is she a compliment to you guys?
1: I think so. I think Jessie is one of those people that actually makes it so. So she is like the classic COO problem of like the CEO wants something done, and then it's her job to actually make it happen. What is Havenly? Havenly is the easiest way to decorate your home. What we do is we match you up with a designer who works with you online to answer your design questions or design your home, and then we suggest all the products that you need for your place and you buy all of it all in one place for the lowest price possible.
0: For those of you listening who aren't familiar with Havenly, go now to havenly.com. It's spelled H-A-V-E-N-L-Y and put the .com there when you do that Google search because they tend to sometimes return results for Heavenly, which is a good word also, but uh, just be sure you get Havenly. Only in the winter. Oh, is that right? Yep.
1: Only in the winter. What is the winter in heaven? What do you mean? Well, no, heavenly oh, is a the ski, ski resort. resort. Right. So okay. they spend a ton of money in the winter. I've actually met the head of heavenly and I've been like, this is highly annoying. That's hilarious. So you're saying the ski resort called
0: heavenly actually trumps the biblical concept of heaven <laughs> it on does. Google?
1: Yes. Well, there you go. Modern America, ladies and gentlemen. So, so
0: you still can game Google if you have a uh, a biblical name for a yes. ski resort. <laughs>
1: So, Lee, when we first met,
0: you were wondering about who your target customer was, and you were still exploring a lot of that. As it turns out, who's the target for this company? So that's
1: a really interesting story. I think, I mean, I think one of the more interesting things that we've done in this business is we've sort of gone from a relatively myopic view of who we thought this would apply to and realized that it applies to a very broad set of people, Um, not always who I'd pictured in my head. So I originally built this company for people like me. Right? That's what we do sometimes. People
0: with seriously good taste who actually (laughs) don't need
1: that much help with design? Attractive, charming (laughs) CEOs. I'm just kidding. Um, But, you know, young, urban, professional-type people living in higher urban areas, early adopters, typically. Um, And I think, you know, for the most part, they still are a really great customer base for us. Um, What's been interesting, though, is to see the growth of Havenly amongst people that aren't like me suburban moms, for example, in the Midwest and the South. You know, these are people that I just never contemplated around this business, but it's just so amazing to be able to service a market that I didn't originally know. How do you handle that? When these
0: companies start, they're just told again and again and again, focus, find your target, just laser focus. If that's all you do, don't think that you have a broad appeal. Focus on your narrow appeal. Go there
1: and expand. Yeah. How do you handle, especially with digital marketing, having broad appeal? It's. I mean, I'm not going to say it's not a challenge. I think it always is a challenge. I think, you know, it's still a relatively narrow appeal. Like, we're not necessarily targeting um, men that are married already because they, they're not going to be helpful for us. And we're not targeting people that don't care about design. And, you know, it, we're not targeting certain demographic areas, for example. I think the biggest piece of advice that I give is the fact that our message and product resonates with those two markets equally. So we're not actually changing our product that much between the two markets, nor are we really changing our messaging really amongst the two markets because it resonates the same way. Part of
0: your product or Mm -hmm. service or whatever Mm -hmm. it is that you call it involves having actual humans do design iteration with other actual humans that are your customers. Now, Somebody sitting in Chattanooga, Tennessee, designing a brand new home there, or a room in a home, is gonna have completely different taste, or I imagine, than a bachelor who's got some pad in Chelsea. How do you staff for that kind of differentiation?
1: So the easiest way to do it is to just ask the customer up front and then match them with the designer based on their style. So
0: do you have designers who really were? I mean, because I don't think the Chattanooga style is necessarily your personal style. And these businesses, it may be. I I actually don't. I've seen your front porch in a magazine picture. I know. It may actually (laughs) match with that. So you have have designers that have a different design ethos? Or are designers all kind of broad? Can they design for any taste?
1: depend. We do have some designers that actually can go across a range of aesthetics, and then we've got designers that really specialize in some. For us, it, we're agnostic. We just want to make sure that the designer you get matches the style you have. What's really important is figuring out who you are from a home perspective, because ironically, while it's not always the geography that matters. Oftentimes, it's what aesthetic you think of as your personal one.
0: You've got these real people, who are doing real design iteration, presumably aided by technology. You've got a lot of people here that are very (laughs) strong in tech. I imagine that one really critical aspect of success with a client for you all is getting them a vision that is what they might've imagined times two. Like it's even better than the best vision they might've had.
1: I think that's right. The interesting part about our business that makes it hard, but also I fundamentally believe that hard problems our profitable problems. I think what makes it hard is, unlike a more functional consumer product, so take an Uber, for example, what consumers want isn't functional with us. They want it to be good, beautiful, inspirational, aspirational. And so ensuring that you deliver on that delight factor each time is hard when you're talking about humans.
0: Startups at your stage are always trying to think about how you scale the business and operationalize practices. How do you balance this notion of scale and being able to hit that hockey stick again and again, actually, for a business like yours with delivering human delight? That's not such an easy balance.
1: It's not. I think, And I think this is where technology comes in. So we're a technology business. It sounds like we're a design business, but we're not. And so what we've started to realize is that people have things that are very similar about who they are and what they like and what we provide them. And so from our perspective, what we're trying to do is abstract the data piece of that and ensure that our designers have access to that in the most easy way possible. Are we there fully yet? No. But you can start to imagine that Sue looks a lot like Liz... And, you know, we know Liz liked these things. So how do we service that designer, that template, so that they can use that and still be creative about Sue?
0: Right. I never thought of it this way. But in that sense, your business it has a lot of overlap with online dating. And since online dating is my very favorite metaphor for <laughs> business, I never thought about that. But if you think about... There, I mean, people joke about it. They're like, oh, really? Another person who likes to dress up in a little black dress and can wear hiking boots? Uh, I, I guess there probably are archetypes for There are business. archetypes. And, and so, I, I love yeah. that
1: you love online dating because our, our new head of marketing was the head of marketing at Match.com. So oh, that's good. So he next also to, thought there were some similarities between our business and next Match. Next one
0: industry we won't talk about on this podcast, I think online dating has the best marketers. So good for you. That's a great, that's a great hire. Well, the other business doesn't even need to market. Um, <laughs> So what is Havenly really good at? The thing, not your unique selling proposition, I get that, but the one thing that as a company you just excel at?
1: That's a really good question. I think the core value that everyone shares here is just really delighting the customer. I think that's something that we're good at from ops to tech to marketing, whatever it is. It's Let's provide an unparalleled experience, and I think there's real passion on the team around this. Like people really believe that we're providing an incredible service for our customers, and thus they go above and beyond to try and do it. And it's something I don't need to teach, which is so nice. Well,
0: you need to hire for that.
1: We do need to hire for that, and we spend a lot of time thinking about how we hire for that. That's
0: incredibly difficult to hire for. What are a couple lessons that you've? learned as you've had, I'm sure you've had mishires and great hires.
1: Yeah, we've had, we've had mishires and we've had a lot of great hires, luckily more great hires than mishires, I think, hopefully. From my perspective, and from my perspective now, it's realizing that I can't compromise on it. So oftentimes, I think when you're in a bind and you're growing really fast, you just need to get people in um, and you end up making these like little compromises. Uh, I don't know, but you know, whatever, whatever, he can do the job. Almost inevitably that's the seam that cracks open under pressure. And almost inevitably, you have to let him go. And that's way more painful than waiting an extra two weeks to find the right person. Plus, you get to
0: beat the heck out of yourself because you knew it all the time. You knew it the whole time. That's a great extra bonus. It's
1: my fault. When that happens, it is my fault. So now we have a process. I meet every single person we hire, which sometimes slows the process down. I don't think that's a bad thing. But I do, and frankly, you know, Jess, I can't tell you how many times Jesse's been annoyed at me because in the final interview, someone says something that is—I have a couple of key red flags, and they hit a red flag, and I'm like, I'm sorry, I know she's got a couple of positions open that we haven't been able to fill because for whatever reason, we keep getting people that hit one of my trip one of my wires, and that's tough. Are you going to let us know? Will you let? Is there <laughs> one of your red flags you'll share? Yeah, sure, I'll share one. I, think I mean, this, this way, it sort of makes is, sure hiring yeah. more efficient. People yeah. can hear this, yeah. and if they're going to hit the red flag, yeah. they just won't apply. Yeah, okay, it, go. this is going to be a little controversial, but unless you're pretty senior, you get 15 minutes with me, 20 minutes with me, and you get five minutes for questions. If your first or second question is about work-life balance, you're not going to get a job here. And I'll tell you why. Because we work hard. We do. We also play hard. Almost all of us have lives outside of work, except for me, and, and we cherish that as well. That's not why you're here. You're not here so that I can tell you that I'm gonna let you ski on Fridays. If you wanna ski on Fridays, go for it. But you only get so much time with me. There are so many questions that you should be asking. That's not one of them. That makes sense. That's a
0: great red flag. What's what's a green flag? What's something where if someone says it, it might be a little counterintuitive, but you think, oh, that is an indicator of someone who's really committed to customers.
1: I think someone who, at some point acknowledges how lucky they are. That's great. I think that there is like, because I think for us, what really works here is someone who's going to kind of overperform, but also not take themselves too seriously. Stuff gets hard, and that's okay. You kind of have to brush it off because we all make mistakes. None of us have done this before. And I think, again, in times of stress, if someone's able to do that, that's a really good sign. And so someone that can sort of say, I've been fortunate. Yeah, I've been lucky. It means that they have a, have a good attitude about their life, but they also just appreciate that not everything needs to be handed to them on a platter. That sometimes you can just be lucky.
0: I think... You and I both moved to Colorado from the East Coast. So we both enjoyed the other perspective. I think it's just challenging to be the CEO of a fast growth company, living in a place where people actually come because there are so many extraordinary opportunities to play. Yeah. Do you ever worry about the company being headquartered here? All the
1: time. All the time. I can't tell you how often I've thought, man, would this be easier if I were somewhere else? I think it's a challenge. I think it makes hiring more difficult. It means that we have to be super intentional around the idea of work and getting things done. And I'll admit, Havenly is far more of a longer hour shop than some other places. And I'm honest about that with people. But I also say, look, like we, that's what sort of led us to this level of success. And i By all means, we'll try very hard to keep this company going with a really great job for you, but you have to participate in that too. It's hard and every day it's hard. I think about it all the time.
0: In the same vein, I just want to ask this because I have my own views of this most of these seats in this office today are filled with humans. (laughs) How do you feel about working remotely? What's your take on that? I know your sister's still headquartered in New York. Is that right?
1: Yeah, she's there and here, mostly because she does a lot of business development work. So it's just helpful to have someone in New York. Other than her, though, we're flexible if you need to be. I mean, look, everyone here is an adult. I've hired good people, I think. So if they need to be somewhere else, that's great.
0: But this is a culture where you're supposed to be here.
1: But you're going to have to be here at some point. Yeah. yeah. Tell me what
0: you're, th- I think that's been, you know, ever since Marissa Mayer talked about this, this yeah. is a little
1: bit controversial. It's definitely controversial. And it's, you know, it's very controversial, particularly when it comes to women, because women oftentimes take on the lion's share of work um, at home as well. And I think it's challenging because we have mothers here and hopefully many future mothers here. From my perspective, it's You don't have to be here. If you need to pick up your kids at four, pick up your kids at four. That's not the problem. There is so much value to you being here and interacting with people. And I'll give you an example because it happened with my executive team on Tuesday. There was an email chain. One of our executives was homesick with a kid and hadn't been in the office for a couple days. And there was like this email chain going back and forth. It was tense. For some reason, two people that almost always are on the same page were not on the same page. And it was like Kind of icky. We got in the next morning, we got in a room, and in 15 seconds we were like, oh, that's what you meant. I didn't know that. <laughs> you know, we use Slack, we use like all of your sort of video call, we use all of that, but like there's something magical about us all being here and being on the same page and working on the same goal. And it infects the rest of the team. So for anyone that's on my executive team, I I basically say, like, you have things you need to do and you have to be there, but for some hours every day. You have to be. Here. Contemplate being here.
0: Yeah. Uh, my business partner, Elizabeth Krauss and I now have a policy. A- as between us, I am by far the more hot tempered one. It's not even close. And you know both of us, so you would have no trouble believing that. And email for a hot tempered person, it's just dangerous. I oh, mean, it's really, totally
1: dangerous. You, know, it sh- you, you, you have, you know, yeah, you're it's a little totally fiery does, yourself. Which is, which is why I don't do it. Like, I like I like, need to be here. <laughs> yeah, I need to yell at you in person. It, it's not like Slack no. makes it better. It's almost
0: worse. I can rip yeah. off a quick yeah. Slack even faster oh, it's than so a noxious email. I know, email I know.
1: At least you could delete it. You can't retract an email, unfortunately. In the old days, but, you could. Right, right. That back in the day. I know. That was a good thing. I missed that function. I got a recalled
0: email, but it never really worked. You got the email that your email was recalled. And then it says it was recalled. That had to be the worst email ever so it only made it worse. Oh, I know. What is the best decision that you've ever made since founding Havenly about Havenly?
1: I don't know. I think when I think about Havenly, it's a series of fortuitous, lucky and good decisions. And on balance, again, those outweighed bad decisions because I made those two, but it's a lot of good ones. I can't say that there was anything, one thing that changed the trajectory of Havenly other than starting it.
0: Right. Great. Well, that that answer totally supports your philosophy of hiring. You're just basically a grateful person. And so it really does come through in how you talk about this. What was a great day at Havenly or a great hour? What happened?
1: great days and great hours have to do with performance. So it's like, we have like, we hit our first X, you know, millions of dollars or we hit our first X thousands of customers or whatever it is. Like every time that happens, I feel good. So my favorite days at Havenly are often our team, we do team offsites twice a year. So we just went to Keystone and it was awesome. We spent the morning in the mountains. We talked about all of these things. Everyone was on the same page. We did brainstorming, we spent, Half, you know, half the day on the lake. You know, it was just very awesome. Mm. And I think that's like, there's something about that when everything seems to be working.
0: You have a number of different roles as the CEO of this company. <laughs> you've raised two or three rounds, culminate well, sort of, you've, you've completed an A round here in the last, whatever it was, six months or eight months. And obviously the business has been growing as well in terms of customer base, even some product differentiation. How do you delineate between sort of your pleasure, your satisfaction as a CEO around successes like closing an A round with fantastic investors versus growing customers or really starting to see some traction around product market fit as you really dial it in?
1: I think I would take traction any day over closing an A round. Not that that's not important, but closing an A round is a resource. It's the same as hiring someone. It's like something I need to do to make this company run. But figuring out how to make a customer take out their credit card and pay for something through you, that's real. The capital might go away, but the customer probably won't if you make them happy. And I think what's tough about raising the capital is, and this is like something I've, I've somewhat commiserated with some fellow CEOs about this. Oftentimes, at least for my first big round of capital, the day after I closed my first big round of capital, I was petrified. I was so freaking scared. Mm -hmm. And it's at the same time that your inbox and your phone is blowing up with people saying congratulations.
0: That's great.
1: And the dissonance between the two is so weird. <laughs> it's horrible. It's like it's like the worst case of imposter syndrome I've ever I've had. I totally
0: freaked out. I know I'm
1: like what? How did I make that happen? Um and so you do you feel like an imposter a little bit and it's not it's an interesting moment. I mean it's it it feels good.
0: Yeah. So what do you think about the billion dollar acquisition of Dollar Shave Club? I think it's awesome. Tell me, I mean, I I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't run your company, but but I, I, I've been involved a little bit in yeah. your company. So, you know, sometimes something like that will happen and I'll go home and think, well, how is company A like Dollar Shave Club? <laughs> Everyone does like, that. Right? Yeah. So yeah. what was your conversation with yourself after you heard that?
1: Well, I think there are two things. The so first, right preceding the Dollar Shave Club acquisition was the One King's Lane acquisition, which wasn't as happy as the story. So you have to imagine that these things ping pong. How am I like One King's Lane? How am I like Dollar Shave Club? Right. Two very different emotions. The one thing I will say about Dollar Shave Club is, my goodness, thank God. Like, we haven't had good e-commerce news in a really long time. And I was starting to get nervous. And I think one of the interesting things about Dollar Shave Club is it's a power brand. I mean, this is a company that basically sends you razors and blades. Right? Yeah. It's not Gillette. It's like, Gillette's a bigger business. (laughs) Gillette's a bigger business that doesn't understand marketing as well. I think think this is a company that has really built this experience and brand around something that's very similar. And the day it happened, we had a brand meeting here. And I was like, this is something investors don't always understand. Brands get bought. Brands get bought. And they get bought at multiples that are far higher. And by brand, I don't mean like pretty logo. logo yeah I get that I mean a customer base that's that's evangelistic about your product will get you bought well the
0: real thing I, I think I'll, I put trunk club in this same category uh and they obviously had a nice acquisition oh a year or two ago uh to Nordstrom both of those business owned the customer and sold through customers that they already owned. Yeah. And your business has a lot in common with that. Yeah. I mean you you know, and you bring in the customer through design services and market them a lot of e-commerce products that the companies that you're selling products for may or may not be as good at.
1: Right. I think that's right. I think it's the ability to sort of create a new and fresh experience for the customer and have them so delighted that they will eventually hopefully stick with you and buy whatever you want them to if it's done carefully. And I think that's so valuable. It's so hard to do when you're an established company, you know, so hard to do something innovative and new and build a fresh sort of feel around something. Um, and that's really the opportunity we have here. So I'm excited about it. I asked you about Havenly. What is it about you? What is the one thing?
0: Let's assume there is one thing so you don't have to worry about being cocky. Let's assume (laughs) there is one thing that is the best thing you do as a CEO.
1: I actually think it's fast decision making. I think there are a couple of things I do well. There are a lot of things I don't do well. But a lot of it is getting comfortable with just the risk of making a decision. And that, I think, is one of the things that attracts team members to me, it's like the fact that like, we're going to go for it and hopefully we'll figure out really quickly if we need to reverse course, but we're going to go for it. And I think it like energizes people. I think it means we move at a pace that's really great. We move at startup speed, which is hard to do, but I think it also, it requires this ability to sort of look at something where you don't have a lot of information and find a path forward. And so much of what CEOs do is that. And when I talk to CEOs that don't have that, oftentimes it's a really tough process.
0: What's the one thing that if you got better at this one thing, you would be an even more successful leader?
1: I think I'm a very frank communicator. But I think it's being a better communicator. So appreciating the strategy around saying something versus not saying something, I often just say something. <laughs> and and being a little bit more message-oriented around what we do. Um, so one of the toughest things about me is I'm a little bit of a cynic. I have a sarcastic side. But my job here is often being head cheerleader. Translating that like sarcastic side into like we're going to be a billion-dollar company, rah-rah, every, every week is not something I do naturally. But I think it's something that really gets everyone together and excited about it. And it's really important that I continue to do it.
0: Well, I want to just delineate between what it is that comes out of your mouth and what it is that's in your mind and your heart. So. Do you believe that this company can be a billion-dollar company? Absolutely.
1: Like, absolutely. Every day, I have to.
0: Oh, so your version, am I right? Like, your version of your inner voice is just beating down that optimism? Is that what happens for you? Well, I just, like,
1: by nature, I'm, like, a a little bit of a sarcastic person, you know? Like, I make jokes. I, like know. it's just who I am by nature. I'm not your, like— you know, I've I've seen, like, these leaders that are complete cheerleaders. Don't you um, think
0: that y- your way of doing that
1: instills trust more quickly? I think it does. But I think, again, it's, it's a balance. So I think a lot of it is figuring out how to communicate the message that suits your style. And I think a lot of that and putting a lot of thought into that is something that's new for me. But it's important. Um, I've got a team now where I don't individually know every single person. So oftentimes what they see is not really all of who I am. And so appreciating that, like every communication that sort of I do or everything I say has an impact, potentially an outsized impact because they just don't get as much of me.
0: Right, right, right. That makes sense. You're in a space where there are a couple other competitors, obviously not nearly as strong as Hayden (laughs) Me. How do you handle that at night when you go home? How much of your consciousness is taken up by thinking about these other competitors?
1: I mean, listen, I've said this before, like the day after your competitor closes or a huge round of funding, you're going to think it sucks. (laughs) You just will. The one thing that I will say is like, allow yourself the space to be sad, whether it's because of a competitor or because something happened in your business or you didn't close what you thought you were going to close. Like, get sad, drink too much wine, like go out, you know, pitch to people. And I think, you know, that's, that's okay. At actually at a MergeLine event, Brad Feld gave me some interesting advice. He said, obsess about your competitor and then forget about him. And I've really taken it to heart. So what I've done is I've unsubscribed from my competitor's emails. I don't follow them on Facebook. I pay attention. We have a team that's responsible for making sure that we know what's going on in the market, not just with our immediate competitors, but, you know, sort of analogous people. I have a vision for this business. We have a vision for this business. I fundamentally believe it'll succeed. I see it starting to, usually. And I can't spend all my time chasing around whoever else is out there trying to do the same thing that we are. Frankly, it's been a good thing. In retrospect, now that I see it, it's grown the market. I mean, people are now searching for online interior design That's services. Great. It's great. Congratulations. It's like, yeah, it's it's one of those things where frankly right now, it's it's still like uh, early so All I can right. be a little more zen about it.
0: <laughs> All right. That's great to know. So there are a bunch of people that are going to be listening to this that are sitting in super well-paying jobs on lots and lots of coasts in the U.S. and beyond <laughs> with really fat jobs like the one you used to have. What's the one thing that you would tell them is something that you've gotten out of being an entrepreneur that you never would have gotten sitting in that very, very well healed desk job?
1: Everything. <laughs> I, I'm not even kidding. Like I was like half a human two years ago. I, I, think it's, and I, and I don't mean to say that flippantly. I, I really think, for me, the amount of professional and personal development that has come out of just these last couple of years has been tremendous. And it's not just the things I've learned. Yes, I learned how to code. I learned how to design something. I now know how to, I don't know, order my own coffee. It's more than that. It's like the ability to think about building a team and creating a product out of nothing and understanding who the customer is and being scared Mm. of where I'm going to get my next paycheck. Like all of those things are things that I wish I'd learned when I was in my 20s. I don't know if I would have been any good at it, but... I feel like I've just come so far in a couple of years.
0: Oh, that's great. Lee, thank you so much for joining us. As you heard, that was Lee Mayer, the co-founder and CEO of Havenly.com. Visit havenly.com and redesign a room or a smaller space with the help of a professional designer and your taste, all working together. As always, thanks for joining us here at Real Leaders Podcast. Real Leaders is brought to you by Mergelane, the accelerator and investment fund for companies with at least one female in leadership. If you are a startup founder or someone who's super interesting and creative working at a large organization or a large company, you can get just a taste of MergeLane at Innovation Camp. Visit MergeLane.com. And look for Innovation Camp in the top nav. That's a one-week program running from November 7th to November 11th for leaders in all different kinds of roles who want to up their game for innovation. Thanks again. We'll see you next time on Real Leaders.